Hello, I'm Will. Welcome to ResearchBot. Over the last 50 years, advances in surgical procedures, clinical understandings, and targeted treatments have changed the prospects of many cancer diagnoses from terminal to treatable. However, this progress is not evenly distributed across the many different types of cancer, and nowhere is that more keenly felt than in cancers affecting children. To even the playing ground, there's a lot that can be learned from searching not just deeper within any one disease, but across the entire spectrum of cancer. Take leukemia, for example. How might the advances and insights treating blood cancers among children benefit patients with brain tumours? To answer that question, I'm speaking with Dr. David Walker and Dr. Chris Halsey about their research connecting trials and treatments across the disease types for the benefit of all patients. Hello to you both. Uh, if we could start with Dr. Halsey, could you tell us maybe a bit about yourself and your background? I'm Chris Halsey. Um, I'm a clinical senior lecturer and also a honorary consultant paediatric haematologist up in Glasgow. So I split my time between um, working and running a research lab in the Institute of Cancer Sciences at the University of Glasgow and then also having um, clinical commitments in the Royal Hospital for Children looking after uh, children with haematological malignancies, so blood cancers. And Professor Walker? We have a lot of parallels. I trained in um, adult medicine and then I moved into paediatrics, having done haematology as an adult specialist to look after the children with leukaemia. And I was immediately committed then to developing skills further in the field of children's cancer and worked a lot in leukaemia and we took part in the dialogue that was taking place at that time about the development of clinical trials. It's always been fascinated by the blood and also the way that haematology combines a lot of time spent with um, patients and a lot of very intensive kind of clinical commitment, but also is very scientific. And as a haematologist, you actually use scientific tests in your everyday work in terms of diagnosing and, and treating children and adults with, with blood cancers. So I was very attracted to working with children and their families. Um, I found that very rewarding and working on the commonest childhood blood cancer, which is leukemia. And from that, I kind of moved towards really wanting to understand more about how to use research to improve treatment for childhood blood cancers. I became fascinated by how leukemia cells, which normally originate in the bone marrow, actually spread um, around the body and um, can infiltrate the area around the brain, the leptomeninges. And I, I wanted to understand how leukemia cells could live in such a different environment from the environment they normally find themselves in the bone marrow and whether by understanding that we could actually identify ways of better treating leukemia that had spread to the brain. And so I now have a research group working primarily on trying to understand more about um, leukemia that spread to the brain and also trying to understand how we might improve the treatments we have for that. All those are effective at preventing recurrence of brain leukemia actually can be associated with quite a lot of side effects for for children, both during their treatment and as they grow up. So half my research group works on understanding how cells live in the brain and the other half on how and why children get toxic effects of chemotherapy and how we might reduce those. I had an opportunity to go and advance my training in Australia at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and was given the opportunity to work particularly in the field of brain tumours. 
because no one else was doing it. Having completed my training in Melbourne, I came back to the UK uh, looking for a consultant position. And before I was appointed in Nottingham, I ran a workshop saying, well, what is the scope of practice that we need to develop in the field of neuro-oncology? And I invited uh, people from all over the country, from different walks of life, and we fleshed out the program that needed to be developed. And then uh, I ended up chairing the Brain Tumor Committee in the UK, and we developed a series of subgroups that worked on the different brain tumors. We opened 13 trials in about seven years, and then went on to work with the European Brain Tumor Committee in SEOP. All the way through, we were always exploring drug therapy. And my experience of leukemia was that if you put drugs into the bloodstream, it goes straight to the bone marrow and it kills off the leukemia cells very, very effectively. And your biggest risk is it kills off the rest of the bone marrow and you have to wait for that to recover before you can give them some more. But in the brain, it's entirely different. Uh, You give the drugs into the bloodstream and most of it doesn't get into the brain. And so therefore, the effectiveness of your therapy is much, much reduced. In leukemia, we'd all spent many hours delivering drugs into the spinal fluid to treat the tumour on the surface of the brain. But in brain tumours, it almost was never occurring. If we look at childhood cancer in general, a third of all cancers are leukemia, and they all potentially involve the brain. 25% of all cancers are primarily in the brain, which means that more than half of children with cancer have a brain component to their disease and therefore its successful therapy. And so this is a major problem for children's cancer. If you look at it further back and look at brain cancer in all adults and children together, it's estimated that something like 40% of all patients with cancer in both children and adults, the brain is the rate-limiting step to cure. So if you don't target the brain especially, then you don't control the disease. And so things like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, which happen very commonly in the adult population, a high percentage of them uh, can spread to the brain. And if you haven't treated the brain specially, like we learned in childhood leukemia, disease will escape control in the brain. And so therefore, this is a really big topic. And I think a lot of the tumors occur, do grow over the surfaces of the brain where intra-CSF therapy is probably the best design for delivering drugs to that part of the brain. When tumours grow within the body of the brain, then intra-CSF therapy isn't applicable. The brain is very precious, if you like, and very vulnerable to kind of toxins. So the body has a, has a kind of barrier between the bloodstream and the brain to stop things that might get into the bloodstream getting across to the brain and causing, causing damage. And that's what we call the blood-brain barrier or blood cerebrospinal fluid barrier. And these two barriers basically stop not just medicines, but other toxins um, and impurities, if you like, getting into the brain, which might be very affected by that. It just struck me that, that if we really wanted to use drugs to treat brain tumours, we needed to think about how we got the drug into the brain better than we were doing it that, to that date. Obviously, intrathecal or intracSF treatment to the leptomeninges was the one where there was the greatest track record in leukaemia, and that's why I came to speak to Chris and we wrote this article about how we might approach the same problem in two different disease groups from different perspectives. People made the connection that, as David mentioned earlier, that um, 
the drugs that get into the bloodstream often don't get into the brain. And so leukemia cells, which are, it is a blood-borne cancer, so it circulates around the body and the leukemia cells can get pretty much everywhere. So you can find the leukemia cells in the liver and the spleen and the kidneys. And some people call the, the brain in particular what's called a sanctuary site for leukemia because the cells can kind of hide away there and they're not affected by the drugs that get into the bloodstream that just are, are, don't get into the brain in the same way. So when they discovered that the leukemia cells were hiding these sanctuary sites, they realized that they would need to try and kill the cells there as well, um, as well as in the, in the bone marrow and in the blood. And the first approach that was used was radiotherapy. And so they used to, to use radiotherapy to the brain and the spine to kill off any leukemia cells that were growing there. Now, actually, that, that therapy was very effective. It reduced the incidence of um, CNS relapses, so relapses of leukemia in the brain, really significantly and caused a really huge jump in the survival of children with leukemia. So with just the um, tablet-based or the, the systemic chemotherapy, about 10 to 20% of children were surviving. And when they introduced this um, approach to give all children this radiotherapy, then the, the cure rates jumped very quickly within a couple of years of introducing this up to kind of 50, 60% of children being cured. And so it looked like, and it was established at that time, that really treating cells in the brain, leukemia cells that might be hiding in the brain, was essential to, to cure childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But one of the issues is we can't actually see the cells in many children. So most of these uh, children we were treating, if you like, blind. We were just giving the radiotherapy because we knew if we didn't that most children would relapse. But it's really quite hard for us to measure those cells. They don't show up on brain scans. Um, we can take a little bit of the fluid from around the brain and look under the microscope. But that's really quite a crude way of looking for leukemia cells and probably misses most children who might have cells that that are in that area but aren't necessarily free-floating in the fluid and so they might be stuck to the surface of the brain um, and so we don't pick them up if we just take a teaspoon say of the fluid and have a look at that. We established a kind of paradigm if you like that all children with leukemia need CNS directed therapy, they need this therapy that specifically gets around the problem of this um, of the drugs not getting into the brain and initially we found that a solution to this was to use radiotherapy. I was really struck in that early work with the brain damage associated with CNS radiotherapy. I was really struck with trying to understand the nature of the brain injury. However, although it's very effective, radiotherapy, as David already alluded to, can cause quite a lot of damage to the child's normal brain particularly in children, of course, whose brain, then their, their brain's still developing, they're still making lots of neural connections. So if you shine radiotherapy that kills living cells, if you like, onto the brain, it's going to kill not just the leukemia cells, but potentially some of the normal brain cells as well. And we found that children treated with radiotherapy, particularly younger children, the infants, the children under two, were left with really quite significant learning difficulties after radiotherapy. And also, even more, in a way, shockingly, I think, to us, when these children grew up um, 10 to 20 years after this therapy, um, a lot of them developed secondary brain tumours because of the damage that was done to the normal brain tissue. And so we cured these children of leukaemia, but we'd given them a longer-term problem of the risk of developing a brain tumour. And it was up to 20%, so one in five children 
who after this cranial radiotherapy as a young child due to their leukemia, ended up with a secondary brain tumour. Now, some of those brain tumours were what we call benign brain tumours, gliomas, etc., and others were malignant brain tumours. But irrespective of whether it's benign and malignant, both of them could cause problems to these children. So this caused us to take a big pause, if you like, in what we were doing. We recognised that that treatment was essential um, to prevent the leukemia coming back in the brain, but we realised that the radiotherapy was really not a good solution for the majority of these children. Peak age of childhood leukemia is age between age two and five. We hope to cure these children of leukemia. So we're hoping that they're going to have 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years of life ahead of them. So we have to think very carefully, not just about how we cure the leukemia, but also any long-term damage that we might be doing with our treatment to their normal body and particularly to the brain. In the 70s and 80s, people realised that the brain um, radiotherapy was maybe not the optimal treatment and they started to switch over to using drugs to treat the leukaemia that's hiding around the fluid in the fluid around the brain. And they did this via circumventing the blood-brain barrier and the blood-CSF barrier by directly injecting the drugs into that fluid around the brain. And so swapping over from the radiotherapy to the intrathecal therapy was done in stages, first for what we thought were children at low risk of the of brain leukemia coming back and then children who are at high risk over time. And it's really only in about the last five to 10 years or so that we've been able in the UK to eliminate use of radiotherapy for all children with leukemia and switch to this drug-based therapy that we give via spinal injection usually, and that we call intrathecal therapy. Chris has illustrated very uh, fluently the story of the development of CNS or brain-targeted therapy with drugs in the leukemia challenge. And it's been a great success. They did three things, really. They changed their dose of their, the selection of their steroid medicine from prednisolone to dexamethasone, which is much higher impact as a drug in the brain particularly. They increased the amount of intra-CSF therapy and also increased the doses of systemic chemotherapy, which would inevitably mean that higher doses of drug got into the brain than previously. And in order to do all of that, the hematologists had to become really, really expert in keeping the children alive during this sort of very intensive therapy. And they had to share that expertise in keeping them alive called supportive care across a whole community across the country because it couldn't be done in just one or two places. It had to be done wherever children with leukemia were being treated. And so that was why it took probably a couple of decades to really intensify it because you had to move gradually for people to learn the skills and adapt to the new therapy and then get the evidence to prove that it was working. And I was observing all of that whilst I was trying to develop the brain tumour agenda we tried intensifying systemic chemotherapy in brain tumours as a way of enhancing cure rates and uh, giving them doses of drugs that made their bone marrow go away. So you had to reinfuse bone marrow cells to make it grow back again. And sadly, it had almost no impact on the cure rates for brain tumours. We had in, tried using intensive chemotherapy, including stem cell rescue, which is a mechanism for regrowing the bone marrow after you administer very, very big doses of drugs. 
and it hadn't produced any beneficial effect in curing brain tumor. And so maximizing systemic administration of chemotherapy wasn't working as a way of improving outcome. And it took us about 15 years to realize that. There were always one or two cases who did better than we expected. But when we came back to look at it, it was often because they'd had a very good operation or something else had happened that made them survive. And so that really made me say, well, if giving the drugs into the bloodstream isn't going to be an effective way to intensify therapy, why don't we try exploring giving drugs into the spinal fluid? Because it worked in leukemia. And uh, so that's why we started to think about it. I'm principal investigator for an organization called the Children's Brain Tumor Drug Delivery Consortium. And uh, this is a charity-funded consortium funded by children with cancer. Our aim is to raise awareness of the need to deliver drugs, especially to the brain, to treat children's brain tumors. And uh, one of our areas of interest is how can we develop interest CSF drug therapy. A lot of people who get brain tumors end up having a shunt put in, which is a drainage device put in to try and bypass the blockage. And that changes the way the spinal fluid flows around the brain and also changes what happens to the drug. And so Although you could say, well, we'll only do this in people without shunts, as about 25% of the children with brain tumors end up with a shunt, that would exclude 25% of the patients for the benefit of this therapy. And so what we wrote about in the paper was to say that our experience is that if you change the route of administration into the CSF, i.e. if you give the drugs into the back rather than into the brain, then you can still deliver the drugs into the spinal fluid if they have a shunt inside you. And we don't see in principle why that shouldn't be done. And that would get over the problem of shunt making the patients ineligible for intra-CSF therapy. And, uh, but it needs to be studied in a trial. And so we need trials of this sort of technology to help us understand how best to do this safely and most effectively. And one of the trials we tried to design, in fact, we did design but didn't get launched, was uh, using the drug into the spinal fluid as an infusion rather than as a bolus because you could then control the concentration of the drug over a prolonged period of time, which may increase its effectiveness and control its toxicity. And that's one of our proposals that we wrote in the paper. But progress is slow, because there are actually only four licensed drugs for brain tumors in the world pharmacopoeias, in adults and children. And so the drug therapy has not really been proven to be effective, although we do use drugs which are unlicensed in children's brain tumors, but they're relatively ineffective. So despite 50 years of intensive research in adult and pediatric neuro-oncology, only four drugs have ended up being licensed for use in brain tumors. For a recent hands-on experience of using the lessons of leukemia to treat brain tumors, I spoke with Lisette Meyer, from the Princess Maxima Centre for Paediatric Oncology in the Netherlands about her experience in treating medullar blastoma in young children. Since a few years ago, I think, we um, discovered that we do not know a lot about why a brain tumour grows. And we have sent our uh, brain tumour samples to specific labs, and that was a lab in Heidelberg and one in Sikits in Toronto, where we have been looking at the brain tumor itself in much more detail to see if we can find why the brain tumor grows. And we've learned a lot about that. 
Uh, and the hope is in the future that we can be much more precise in giving the treatment to stop the growth. There are hardly any brain tumors where just cutting the tumor out is a good enough treatment because usually you can't get the whole tumor out with uh, surgery. Uh, like when you're elsewhere in the body, you always take a, a rim of healthy tissue around the tumor to make sure that, that the small, uh, every tumor grows a little bit into the surrounding tissue and to make sure that, that it's grown into the surrounding tissue that you've also taken that out. But it's uh, a problem in the brain. You can't do it there because you can't take half a centimeter or a whole centimeter of surrounding healthy brain out because then you severely damage the patient. Uh, and therefore, there's always the chance of tumor left where the surgeon didn't see any tumor anymore. Uh, and therefore, there's almost always either chemotherapy or radiotherapy after surgery to make sure that you're rid of the tumor once and for all. But the problem with systemic administered drugs is the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is a very strong barrier to prevent toxins which are in the bloodstream to enter the brain. Uh, and in large bulk tumor, the tumor itself produces blood vessels to grow because everything that grows needs oxygen. So if you give a pill or give chemotherapy by intravenous infusion, uh, then it will get into the bloodstream and the bloodstream will get into the tumor and you will attack the tumor from inside. But because those blood vessels aren't usually very good, the drugs can get over the blood-brain barrier. And the problem with leptomeningeal metastasis, because it's a very thin layer of tissue, there's no blood supply yet. Uh, you have to give drugs via uh, intravenous injection or via pill in a high enough dose so it crosses the blood-brain barrier, so it comes from the body blood vessels into the CSF itself. And that's almost not possible. Uh, and then, of course, you get a lot of systemic uh, toxicity, which you do not want for the patient. Or you have to make a drug which is able to cross the blood-brain barrier and can just enter the CSF. Uh, but the problem uh, with that is uh, that there's not a lot of drugs which are able to cross the blood-brain barrier because it's so well-developed. In order to circumvent the blood-brain barrier, you give intra-CSF treatment. As Chris said, it has replaced radiotherapy. We are looking into brain tumor patients. Um, and we see in very young children uh, where we rather not give radiotherapy because radiotherapy is an effective treatment. But the problem is uh, you get, a, like uh, they discussed in the leukemia patients, uh, irradiate young brain, uh, you get significant toxicity and that's most of all cognitive impairment where you see if children are under five years of age or under three years of age, um, that if you irradiate the children, their quality of life uh, diminishes significantly because they won't be able to have schooling as they would have had had they not been irradiated. And especially radiating young children, uh, they get much more problems when they're uh, into adults uh, 
age uh, to be able to live on their own, to be able to uh, maintain healthy relationships uh, due to their cognitive impairment. So in young children with medulloblastoma uh, under the age of three to five, uh, we have now replaced radiotherapy with uh, intra-CSF treatment. And since you administer the drugs directly at the tumor site, uh, you can significantly lower the dose, which will be unable to generate systemic toxicity once it enters the bloodstream. The drugs enter the leptomeningeal metastasis by diffusion, and therefore the contact between the drug and the tumor should be long enough to be able for this process to take place. Uh, and we see good results with that, being able to cure children without the need of radiation, with uh, keeping the survival as it had been previously, but having a better cognitive outcome and, and therefore a much better quality of life for the child. The problem is you have to put an extra reservoir, which is a small catheter that you stick into the head to deliver the drugs into the lateral ventricle. And so that required an extra operation. And there were some complications of putting those reservoirs in. Someone got infected, they needed taking out and replacing. And when they tried to recommend this in the United States to be a trial that they could replicate, there was no enthusiasm to do it. So the process of administering intra-CSF therapy, the technology involved, wasn't widely accepted by the medical community at that time. And it still is not routinely done. And one of the reasons we wrote the article was really to highlight that the evidence that intra-CSF therapy may improve outcomes for brain tumours exists already because there are a number of trials where it was done in paper. The evidence is that it works. But in practice, people are still very reluctant to do the extra operation, put in a reservoir, and to design trials with intra-CSF therapy as part of the treatment program because of the extra burden of risk for the child and family and the uncertainty of the benefit. You know, the intra-CSF drug program you have in leukemia is really quite burdensome, isn't it? I mean, it's oh, yeah, a absolutely. lot of visits to hospital, anaesthetics, lumbar punctures. You know, it uh, involves the hospital in a huge amount of expense. There's a big risk associated with the intrathecal drug delivery programs. It really does occupy a lot of your time in your team, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So the reason we wrote the article is to highlight that there was a potential benefit, that there are technical difficulties. It would be really good if somebody could invent a better way of giving the drugs into the spinal fluid. In fact, I've had discussions with people who might be able to do that, but the technical development of such devices is complicated and involves big commercial and technical device development programs, which are not straightforward. But we are therefore on the threshold of an era when using drugs directly into the brain may well start to become more routine practice. Have there been any indications of patients or any diseases that patients have that make them more suited to this? For the children who are very young, who present the brain tumour under the age of three or five years of age, whose brain is still in the very early stages of growth and development, they have already been subjected to the use of drugs into the spinal fluid because to try and delay the time when you might use radiotherapy to the brain to try and eradicate the remaining tumour for the reason that uh, Chris outlined as being a problem. 
in leukemia is that if you irradiate young brains, they don't work as well when you're older, uh, either because your memory and your concentration span and your cognitive capacities are impaired, and also you're putting the child at risk of getting another brain tumor as a result of the radiation damage. So in the very young children, we have been using intra-CSF therapy. It's never been subjected to randomized trials, so we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do, but we haven't got very good evidence. And that's slightly inhibiting people from making the leap because there isn't that randomized trial evidence that everybody can see and say, oh, we should definitely do this. I mean, within leukemia, we've now become a little bit of a victim of our own success because we're so fortunate that now we can cure over 90% of children with leukemia. That means that it's very hard to ask families to kind of take a leap of faith and try a new treatment if the current treatment um, has a 90% cure rate. And I think when children present with leukemia, I think in most families that, you know, it's such a terrifying diagnosis that most families and, and patients themselves really focus completely on just curing the leukemia and just getting rid of it and making sure that it doesn't come back. And maybe secondary considerations like what will the treatment itself cause toxicity and side effects and things, they're less important at the beginning because they're just so fixated on cure, if you like. And that's completely understandable. And that means that if you want to try and introduce new treatments that you think might be less toxic, but you're not certain as to whether they're going to be as effective as a curing because you haven't tested it, that's a quite a difficult thing to do now. And you have to take that very slowly. The other thing which you mentioned, Chris, early on, is that prioritizing quality of survival when getting consent from parents, when they're worried about their child dying from leukemia, is a problem in brain tumors as well, in that they have to often have a brain operation. And the parents think that the chances are there's a very high chance of the child dying in the brain operation. And we can't get them to consider research or trials which are seeking to reduce the long-term damage to the brain at that moment. And it's because they're so overwhelmed by the fear, which is natural for parents, of immediate loss of their child. And they can't see that doing a trial and giving consent to a trial, which may impact upon how clever they are in the future or how able they are to take part in society 20 years' time, as being as important as trying to save their life at the moment. And that's a real, it's an ethical dilemma, actually. But we know as uh, pediatricians and cancer specialists that actually the vast majority of the children are going to, are going to be cured. Though the Leukemia Trials Committee has taken the cure rates from 50% to 80 or 90% in, in my professional lifetime. And so in terms of percentage chances of being alive, then that's really a given. There is a small chance that something disastrous might happen. So if you're going to be alive for a long time, and the same is true in brain tumor, medulloblastoma, there's an 80% chance of being alive in 10 years' time. The number of children who die in the operating theater, I've never known a child die in the operating theater in the last 40 years of my life, unless they've come in acutely unwell and were dying before they got to the operating theater. But if they go into the operating theater in control, then they don't die. And so what you do in the operating theater that may affect their future long-term intelligence is really important, but you can't get people to think like that because the parents are so scared. So I think there's an overlap, there's something to be learned there together, is how do we 
communicate with families that we've got treatment. The big question for the treatment here is the quality of your child's brain in 20 years' time, and we want to do a study to try and make sure it's as good as we can make. And it's how we get that message across to worried people is actually a specific research problem. I don't know what you think about that, Chris. That is absolutely fascinating, David, and I think you'll be pleased to know that we're we're thinking about that very deeply in leukemia now. And I think that's because we are in the fortunate position that worldwide we can cure 90, 95% of children with childhood leukemia. And so we've recognized in our community that we can't measure new drugs about by whether they increase our survival rates. What we're looking for is whether they can produce the same level of cure, but with better quality of life. And so we're just literally in the middle of, a, of an international effort to um, reconfigure how we assess the success of our leukemia treatments. The other reason we're a victim of our own success is that we are, because we cure 90% of children and leukemia is fortunately relatively rare, there's actually not that many children where the leukemia comes back and it comes back in the brain and things. So if you want to measure whether a new treatment is effective, you need an awful lot of patients to get enough patients who actually have the leukemia coming back in the brain to see whether your treat your new treatment is effective or not. So there's two kind of problems with that, which means that when we're looking at testing new drugs and new approaches, we probably can't go straight to the majority of children with leukemia. And we probably need to focus on children that don't have other curative options. So the kind of areas that we might want to explore for testing new drugs would be children where the leukemia has come back, where maybe even the treatment that we have for recurrent leukemia has failed, and they're left with essentially incurable leukemia. And at that point, we can say, you know, is this a time where we might be able to test one of these new drugs to see whether it makes any CNS leukemia you have go away and see how long it can go away for? We wouldn't necessarily be able to promise a cure, but we would potentially be able to promise a remission. Those patients are, are rare. There are only a few each year in the UK. So in order to run those kind of trials, we need to team up either internationally, and we're very good at that in leukemia, of, of teaming up across different countries. So our next leukemia trial, in fact, involves 14 countries across Western Europe to really to give us the opportunity to look at rare subgroups such as children with recurrent CNS leukemia, but also possibly teaming up with the brain tumor community. So there's no reason why if we're testing how safe a new treatment is and how effective it is at getting good drug levels in the brain and things, why we couldn't have trials that included both children with CNS leukemia that's come back in the brain and children with brain tumors. So that would be another very interesting way forward to explore. The model of leukemia is really important because leukemia is a disease of the bloodstream and it produces tumors that grow on the surface of the brain at what we call the leptomeningeal surface. And that probably gets there from the bloodstream, and Chris can talk about this because that's her research area, and it gets from the bloodstream onto the edge of the brain, into the meninges, and it can kind of grow specifically there. And we see this pattern of growth in our malignant brain tumours. Now, historically, we thought the tumour fell off the brain surface, travelled around the CSF, and set up shop in the leptomeninges. But recent work suggests that it actually may be getting into the bloodstream and going by the same route 
as we see with leukemia. And that's really important because that means that the tumor cells are spreading the bloodstream to get to the leptomeninges and brain tumors that could be get doing that in brain tumors as well. And underlines the proposal that Chris has just made that maybe we should be doing this jointly. Yeah. From my point of view, in terms of leukemia and the kind of the current state of the art, if you like, we have very effective therapies for CNS leukemia. We show that you can cure leukemia that's spread to the brain by giving chemotherapy. But what we don't have is non toxic therapies. And given our enormous cure rates for childhood leukemia, which is a great thing to be celebrated. We do need to think very carefully about whether we can achieve the same cure rates with kinder and gentler therapies, if you like. And I think that's a really important focus for us. And we mustn't be complacent by just saying we're curing the leukemia. We have to think about the quality of the treatment that we're giving. And new drug discovery of less toxic drugs that we can give effectively to the brain was really, really important in the childhood leukemia field. And it's difficult to get enough pharma company interest in that, if you like, because obviously childhood cancers are rare and relapsed brain leukemia is even rarer. But I think we just need to keep emphasizing how important it is that we get really effective drugs that are non-toxic in this area. And I think one of the key steps that will allow us to realize that in childhood leukemia is actually being able to measure the leukemia in the brain. I think because we can't see it, we're treating these children blind. It's very difficult then to bring in a new therapy and say, is it better than the current therapy? Whereas if we were actually able to have what we call biomarkers, so things that we can measure that tell us how much brain leukemia there is and how quickly it's responding to treatment and whether there's early signs of it growing back again, then I think we're in a completely different research space where we can start comparing our current treatment that's relatively effective, but very toxic against treatments where we know that we hope they're going to be much less toxic, but we're not quite so sure about whether they're going to clear the brain leukemia as effectively. So that would really revolutionize how we treat brain leukemia. And that's something that we're exploring in the next childhood leukemia trial as an add-on scientific study, which is being led from us in Glasgow, but has collaboration across 14 different countries to collect samples of the cerebrospinal fluid and to measure for sub-microscopic amounts of leukemia in that fluid by a variety of different techniques and see if we can use the results of those measurements to predict which children will have the leukemia recur in the central nervous system. And I, So I'm really hopeful that in the next five to 10 years, we will have the tools that we need to enable us to test really much more innovative drugs that can cure both leukemia and brain tumours potentially without the kind of toxicity we see with our current treatments. I think what Chris has just said about being able to measure CNS involvement using a variety of scientific techniques is really, really important for the brain tumour agenda. And I think we should join forces on that because a lot of the techniques are specific to the particular leukemia, but some of the techniques are about detecting very small signals. And I think we could learn from the leukemia trials community about that. The device we've worked with for giving drugs directly into the brain tissue itself, called the Renishaw infusion device, has got a skull-mounted port that comes out through the skin. And uh, it's been proposed that that could be modified to be an intrathecal device. And it can be put in and taken out, and the catheter could be placed anywhere in the spinal fluid you wished. 
And if we introduce that, uh, you know, with the device development you need to do to make it, that would revolutionize leukemia care because suddenly they wouldn't need to be put to sleep. It's because uh, the port comes out through the skin, you attach a syringe directly to it, you clean it and to sterilize it. Uh, and uh, we've been using it in children and leaving them in. And then you can take them out again at the end of the therapy and you wouldn't need to put them to sleep every time. Could you imagine how that would change your clinic? I mean, it would be amazing. Amazing. And it's those sorts that, so what we've concluded in the Drug Delivery Consortium is that the practice in this area of delivering drugs to the brain will be, will be driven by device development. That if we could get a device that creates an easy way of delivering drugs to the spinal fluid, that will accelerate it. Because what's holding it back is the device is a clumsy, risky thing to use. And the alternative is put people to sleep and stick a needle in their back is a painful procedure that you need to, and the children worry about it. Mm. And so I think the agenda here will be driven by, will be accelerated if devices can be developed that overcome the deficiencies of the current method of drug administration to the spinal fluid. Because although we're used to them, they are actually extremely burdensome. And I remember when the we went from six lumbar punctures to 10 or 12 lumbar punctures. The health economic discussions in the hospitals as to how we were going to manage that in all the leukemia units around the country, it meant that when they had one anaesthetic list a week, they needed two or three. And the costs of all that were really difficult to find. And I mean, we have up to 26 lumbar punctures on some of our protocols. Plus, we've published recently that, um, you know, and in fact, serves St. Jude's that general anaesthetics have an effect on neurocognitive repeated general anaesthetics and particularly use of nitrous oxide during anaesthesia in association with methotrexate is associated with adverse neurocognitive outcomes as well. So if you can do things without anaesthesia, it'll make a massive difference. We reviewed all the drugs in the pharmacopoeia for their suitability for giving drugs into the spinal fluid, and we concluded that we wouldn't give methotrexate to anybody. Any neurologist would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite the conclusion. But as well as learning from leukemia in brain tumours and from brain care in leukemia, has there been any lessons learnt or do you think there is room to reach out to other disease areas, be they developing treatments like uh, your advances in immunotherapies, targeted molecules or combination therapies, or other parts of the healthcare industry? You mentioned the device design and implementation there. If more people are involved, is that many hands making light work or too many cooks in the kitchen? It's opportunities, people grasping up and the right person coming to the fore who's got a good idea and them getting through the commercial process. The commercial process is extremely complicated and there can be no guarantee that your good idea will get developed. That's my observation. And luck is a big part of it. Mm. But I think in answer to your question, well, yes, possibly. I mean, you know, there's I've always been fascinated by the fact that leukemia cells love living in the leptomeninges. And David mentioned that you see that uh, solid tumors also get very attracted to leptomeninges. But interestingly, um, in multiple sclerosis, lymphocytes, which are obviously the non-malignant counterpart of leukemias, love living in the leptomeninges too and set up little homes within the leptomeninges and produce antibody. And that, that production we know in multiple sclerosis can be stable over many, many years. And so you can imagine that areas where we understand the biology of how cells can survive 
in what is normally an, an area which actually doesn't have normal cells in it, it's normally what we call an acellular fluid, might have translations into other areas. And I've always had a hope that some of our work might have an overlap with multiple sclerosis, which is such a hideous disease and, you know, with lack of really effective treatments. So, you know, I think you always need to be alive to these possibilities, that there may be synergies with quite distant specialties. But, I think um, the other thing what you're talking about there is the fact that the microenvironment of the brain is infinitely variable. Mm. And what happens in one part of the brain doesn't apply to another part. And the leptomeninges is a microenvironment that has unique qualities, just like the thalamus is a different microenvironment to the cortex or to the cerebellum. And the brain is not a single organ. It's many, many organs genetically controlled with completely different mechanisms on one part of the brain compared to the other. And I think the leptomeninges are the coverings of the brain. They have their own environment. It's not a brain. It's actually the coverings, and it's the vascular space at the junction between the CSF spaces, the fibrous material that contains the CSF that has this particular quality. And so thinking about how you can manipulate the microenvironment to influence the tumour is a legitimate strategy. Absolutely. Is there a useful hub of information that they could get in touch with you through, or are there hubs for local trials, any clinical centres, any patient advocacy, any patient support groups, anything that you'd like to plug now for them? For leukaemia, yes, we have um, a lot of support for parents and their families and ways that they can access information about research that's going on. So probably one of the best sources of information is the, the CCLG's website. So the Children's Cancer and Leukaemia Group are a professional organization run for all healthcare professionals looking after children with leukaemia and cancer, but also having excellent parent resources and support a lot for research into this area. So they're a very good source of information. I'm sure David has a lot to plug for brain tumors. There's some very good patient support groups there. Yeah, so the Drug Delivery Consortium is a collection of specialists interested in developing research for drug delivery. Uh, they're interested, they have patient involvement. We have representations from research councils and uh, funding bodies who listen to what we're saying and we're getting our message across in a progressive way. And this podcast is part of that process. Uh, sharing this debate in the broader community from different perspectives is a kind of an important academic process. I don't know what you think, Chris. Totally. I'm buzzing with ideas. And uh, David, I'll email you after <laughs> a few things, <laughs> thoughts, probably not for recording in this thing. But yes, I think um, there's so much that we can do together. And I think we do tend to sit a little bit in our ivory towers, you know, working with our known close colleagues. And, you know, it's a recurrent thing in science, isn't it? You really make the breakthroughs when you cross boundaries and cross disciplines and bring people together who have very different perspectives on the same problem, if you like. So I think this has really been fascinating. And yeah. We're trying to set up a drug delivery group with the ITCC, and I, you've just convinced me that we should be including the haematologists in it. Yep, definitely. 